Today's show is sponsored by CloudZero. For software-driven companies focused on growing margins, CloudZero is the only cloud cost intelligence platform that puts engineering in control by connecting technical decisions to business results. By analyzing cloud services like AWS and Snowflake, CloudZero provides real-time cost insights that help you maximize margins. Engineering teams can answer critical questions like, who are my most expensive customers? How much does this specific feature cost our business? What's the cost impact of re-architecting this application? With cost anomaly alerts via Slack, product-specific data views, and granular engineering context that makes it easy to investigate any cost, CloudZero is your complete cloud cost intelligence platform, connecting the dots between high-level trends and individual line items. Join companies like Drift, Rabbit7, and SeatGeek by visiting cloudzero.com cloudcast to get started today. That's cloudzero.com slash cloudcast. Cloudcast Media presents from the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina. This is the Cloudcast with Aaron Delb and Brian Gracely, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome back to the Cloudcast. We're coming to you live from our massive Cloudcast studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. And as I record this, it is the beginning of March. Hard to believe it is March already. But continuing a trend, I think that's been going on for the last couple of weeks. As we jump into Cloud News of the Week, it is a slow news week once again. So I'm really looking forward to things picking up here before too much longer. But we have uh, two articles of interest this week. We're going to jump right in, get through those. And we have a, a blast from the past guest uh, coming up right after the break as well. So for our first article, NetApp has acquired a company in their cloud portfolio. So full disclosure, my old employer, I uh, came from there and, and it was really interesting uh, as I was leaving the company, them watching, uh, watching them build up their cloud portfolio. And this is the fourth acquisition by NetApp, specifically for cloud, in just the last two years. And NetApp bought a company called Filament. Now, doesn't uh, it isn't spelled like it sounds. I'll let you go take a look at it. Uh, it's, it's definitely all of the good domain names are taken at this point. But uh, what's interesting here is what they do. It is a cloud operations and automation platform. And where does this fit into everything they, they've been doing over the years? Well, of course, they keep building out Spot and the Spot portfolio, and they're going to add this into that as well. So think of this almost like a, a ServiceNow-like capability of end-to-end -end collaboration, incidents response, alerting, and most importantly, automated remediation as well. Now, how do you achieve something like that? Well, Lots and lots of integrations. Uh, integrations into Terraform, into Ansible, into CloudFormation, and, and also, of course, all the big services that are out there, Datadog, Splunk, PagerDuty, Slack, ServiceNow, etc. And the whole idea is connecting SRE teams to automated workflows to simplify operations. Uh, very new company. I actually hadn't heard of them. Uh, only founded in 2019 and uh, had taken just one round of funding at $6 million. Uh, And so congratulations to both NetApp and Filament on that. 
And for our next article this week, we have CloudBolt. And CloudBolt did a survey uh, really all around, uh, I'll say, kind of hitting the wall. (laughs) And what I mean by that is there's lots of multi-cloud environments out there. And every time you do multi-cloud, there's lots of tools out there as well. Well, you're creating fragmentation. You're creating silos. You're creating access to a lot of services. And at the same time, how do you know if you're really getting everything out of those uh, services? And so uh, of the survey, 76% say they're kind of hitting a wall. They're hitting a wall on diminishing returns on those investments, getting the value out of everything. And really that a company can say they're, they're fully maximizing everything they're doing in their environment and things are getting increasingly complex, increasingly unwieldy, and it's harder and harder to get full visibility. You're starting to develop islands of automation and siloed uh, experiences as well. And it's something we've seen a lot of, uh, you know, as especially you go multi-cloud, things get more complex and uh, lots and lots of tooling is needed to kind of handle everything as well. And so if that is of interest to you, go take a look at the article on that. But that's it for Cloud News of the Week. Short and sweet this week. Um, Coming up right after the break, we have an old friend of the show, Tim Prendergast. Tim is with a new company, is going to be talking about security access as code. And that is coming up right after the break. Today's episode of the Cloudcast is sponsored by Datadog, a real-time monitoring platform that unifies metrics, traces, and logs into one tightly integrated platform. Datadog APM empowers developer teams to identify anomalies, resolve issues, and improve application performance. Begin collecting stack traces, visualizing them as flame graphs, organizing them into profile types such as CPU, I.O., and more. Teams can search for specific profiles, correlate them with distributed traces, and identify slow or underperforming code for analysis and optimization. Plus, with Datadog APM Live Search, you can perform searches across the full stream of ingested traces generated by your application over the last 15 minutes. Try Datadog APM free with a 14-day trial, and Datadog will send you a free t-shirt. Visit datadog.com slash APM dash cloudcast to get started. That's datadog.com slash APM dash cloudcast. Today's show is sponsored by BMC, and BMC wants to know, is your business on its A-game? The A-game is when systems are intelligent by learning from markets, where automation is paramount yet effortless and when technology and people work as one in an enterprise. The A-game is your business at its absolute best. BMC calls this the autonomous digital enterprise. Find out more at bmc.com slash A-game. That's bmc.com slash A-game. And we're back and just airing this week. And I have a long lost friend of the show. Um, Welcome back to the show, Tim Prendergast. Now CEO at Strong DM. And for those that don't know, Tim, you were on the podcast show 151. This was probably the longest break between guests of somebody that we've had on the show in a long time. And you are probably one of our first security guests ever. <laughs> so it has been almost eight years since we've had you on the show. So for those that don't know, Give everyone a brief introduction and, and tell us what you've been up since your Evident and I.O. days. 
Yeah, I'm Tim Prendergast. I'm clearly the uh, security podcast cicada, I guess. So I <laughs> reemerge every near decade. Um, so yeah, so since uh, Evident IO, uh, the company was acquired by Palo Alto Networks and became Prisma Cloud. Uh, and I sit down as the first chief cloud officer in a you know publicly listed company uh, that we're aware of ever. Uh, and I'm sure there are more of them now. And then after a year of kind of helping set that up for success, I stepped back and I liked the CCO acronym. So if you look at my LinkedIn, it says I was chief couch officer for a while, uh, which was a lot of fun because I got to catch up on video games, got to binge watch some TV shows, got to spend a lot of time with the kids uh, and kind of just surf through the little bit of a pandemic we had going on. Nice. Uh, and and got reacquainted with a bunch of you know former colleagues and contacts through LinkedIn, including you know the founders of StrongDM, uh, and kind of one thing led to another. Yep. So, quick side side off topic question: What was your favorite show while you were chief couch officer? Oh, oh, it's a British comedy show about Shakespeare called Upstart Crow, and if you have not seen it, uh, it is hilariously entertaining. Uh, especially if you're kind of like a, a book nerd like I am. Nice, nice, fantastic. I will have to check it out. I hadn't heard of that. Um, so you introduced our listeners to the concepts of continuous security monitoring and, and shared responsibility in the public cloud. Believe it or not, as far as I can tell, you were the first one to talk about it on our podcast. So let's bring folks up to date. Um, have secu- How have security models and concepts evolved in the last eight years? You know, I think when we originally talked about it, people were still not sure if this cloud was really a thing. I mean, you guys named a podcast about it and that was a good endorsement, but you know, that wasn't enough for like the big enterprise to really go all in. And I think there was a lot of concern about, you know, how do we know what we have and how are we able to keep kind of the walls around all these assets that people can create if everyone in the company can go spin resources up. And I think that's become um, a foregone conclusion for everyone that this is the reality we live in. And fundamentally, we have to come up with better ways to not only contemplate what this dynamic infrastructure we have and, and kind of what we call the borderless stack, uh, but also how do we assess it for things like security, operability, reliability? How do we know what we have? I mean, if this log4j thing that we got as a, a late Christmas gift was teaching anyone anything, it was, gosh, do we really know all the things that are compiled up into our software stack. So if something had a vulnerability, could we know all the parts of our infrastructure that was impacted by it? Um, It's really put stuff into perspective for organizations. And I think people probably had to do a double take when they realized how much infrastructure and software they actually operate in the modern businesses today. Yeah. And the other thing I would add as well, I I think back when we were talking to you, it was a little bit of like, hey, yeah, is this cloud secure? You know, can I trust this cloud thing? Because I have, you know, this great border and I have these great firewalls and these VPNs and all of these other tools back in the day. But then I think also the script has kind of flipped a little bit and this will kind of lead us into our topic here of, if anything, it's more than secure enough, but the problem with it is, is securing it, just configuring all the nerd knobs of, you know, IAM, <laughs> for instance, at times, mm-hmm. right? And and so if anything, it's it's gone from, is it secure enough to, oh, wow, it's, it's overly complex at times, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, if you think back when I was last on the show, there was probably... 30 or 40 Amazon services. Now I think there's probably like 30 flavors of Aurora all by itself, right? So there's like, you talk about 
infrastructure in generic human terms, but when you look at them in machine terms, uh, there are so many permutations that no one human can fathom or, or calculate them all mentally, right? You can't sit there and say, I understand everything we have in all of our stack. Uh, infrastructure and technology has gotten just too big for people. And so we're in a revitalization era where we're kind of figuring out, hey, how do we build systems that help us manage systems? And this is a foreign concept to everyone but like the Googles of the world who basically were predicated on like PhDs designing systems to manage systems as a way of scale. Uh, and, you know, now banks and insurance companies and, you know, produce delivery companies have to figure this stuff out uh, because it's just part of modern business. And so that's the craziest thing to me when you contrast then and now. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, when you talk to people who come on and talk to you about continuous security nowadays, uh, if they even realize what that was like just less than 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, it's something that has certainly evolved extremely quickly. And that, let's talk a little bit about the main topic then. And, and I completely admit it's a leading question for, for you, Tim. Um, StrongDM recently published some great reports on this and this concept of security access as code, right? And, and what I mean by that is... Um, you have an infographic and this year of access reports. And, and by the way, they're linked in the show notes. So definitely go check them out. But where, where and how do developers and more specifically, where does like DevOps or DevSecOps that we started to hear about more recently, where does it fit into all of this? And we're starting to talk about how do we air gap developers in public cloud? Yeah, I mean, I think what, if you play this story forward from a number of years ago, as soon as we all got comfortable with everyone that was touching code, basically spinning up dynamically infrastructure and being able to kind of summon the genies that do the work for you in, in the clouds, uh, we uh, just understood that, okay, cool, they can do that and they can figure out how to manage everything as code and, and we're done. Infrastructure as code was coined and you know, great companies like HashiCorp were born. Uh, and then, okay, cool, we're all done, right? Everyone's in the cloud. And like that wasn't the story at all. The story was behind the scenes, you had all these people who were clamoring to get onto those systems and interact with them and work with them and figure out how they could do it in the easiest way possible. And most times that was the source of a lot of the security problems that we got to see in the news also. It was like, hey, we just created one set of credentials and we dumped it on this network drive and you guys can all use the same IAM key to log in uh, and, and work with this API or you guys can all uh, just use the same SSH username and password to get to all these systems or we just copy the same SSH key over all the Linux boxes and we all use it to, to interactively log in, right? So um, while we made it really easy to roll out infrastructure as code, we made it really hard to manage infrastructure because access has always been this manual thing that goes back to the keys and deadbolts we have on our homes uh, where you expect that you have 100% implicit trust to whoever you give that key to. Uh, you know, Aaron, I would guess you wouldn't like make a copy of your house key and give it to everyone you work with and just say, Hey, look, I trust you won't come in and, you know, do anything malicious in my house. I mean, maybe you're a very trusting guy, but that's just not where I am. And I think that's a really good parallel to infrastructure. You wouldn't give everybody in the company full access to everything because it's just, it's a risk and it is uh, not a risk because you don't trust the people, but it's a risk because it just opens so many potential um, opportunities for something to go wrong. And uh, something else I, and I just thought of this, um, 
when you were talking earlier about us going from kind of this border to borderless security, it's almost as if to the old way to, de- to kind of de- develop things. And even, you know, back in, in my data center days, a lot of fo- we did exactly what you just said. Hey, we just need to get it going. Just make everything wide open right? Make it wide open because we'll, it's only development. It's not going into production. We're going to figure it out. And oh, by the way, you had firewalls and all these other things to protect you anyway. But now you have all these different paths now. You, yeah, you've got SSH keys. You've got the AWS IAM keys. You've got RDP. You've got database credentials. You've got things kind of all over the place. Be, and you don't have this border anymore. And so you have this mindset of until it hits production, don't worry about securing it. And oh, by the way, you know, automation at scale these days, no one cleans up after themselves a lot of times unless it's automated, <laughs> right? Yeah. <I> mean, <laughs> if you're automating the creation of all this stuff, and you don't have really good systems to inventory and manage it, then how do you know what you really have in the first place, right? And look, we're all victims of this. You go dig through the junk closet in your house and you're going to be like, oh crap, I have like a 12-year-old Cisco router sitting there I didn't even know I owned. Like, we all have it, right? And it's true of software and systems and companies. And if you play back, a lot of companies are doing exactly what you said. They're in a rush to meet deadlines and produce software. And so the, in development, the thing that was the hack to get the job done so you could focus on the features now becomes the basis for which access is delivered to things like production. And the, the symptom is, you know, everyone gets access, but the root cause is, the acceptance of this is just the societal norm. And so we're going to compensate by putting big barricades and borders around and making it really hard to get in. But what you don't realize is when, you know, all these systems live outside of your corporate walls, you basically are making your employees like do the steeplechase. They have to go, you know, jump 21 barbed wire hurdles and they have to go, uh, you know, fundamentally crawl through broken glass to get on the database server to run a 10 second query. No one wants to do the labor as a Hercules just to do their job. Uh, and so the solution we all came up with was just way too complex and painful for what really could be something very elegant, right? And uh, it's the same paradigm of shifting from racking, stacking, ordering hardware and building data centers to just software-defined infrastructure and standing up instances in cloud. Sure, you can build walls and gates and moats and do biometric scans and seven-factor authentication and stuff to prove that you're Aaron. But if I make it really hard for you, once you've done that, to still get on the machine and do the work, then all that was just security theater, right? It may make us feel more secure, but it's made you really frustrated as an end user. And I think that ties into some of the things that we see in society today. We have people who are um, just, you know, pulling the ripcord at, you know, high paying jobs at companies because they spend 75% of their time waiting for access to something or 75% of their time setting up to do the 25% of the time of the actual job they're getting paid to do. And uh, they're like, forget this, man. I'm going to go do it somewhere else. And you see a lot of these really talented people showing up at all these startups where there's less regulation, there's less uh, rigor around security. And it's because they're, you know, the, the unicorns that are scaling really fast, everyone's got access to production. Everyone can log in and work with everything. And they kind of call it no ops or DevSecOps or whatever, where it's basically everyone doing ops. Uh, and the end result is, yes, there's velocity and you get things done a lot faster, but there's inherently so much more risk. And we've seen it play out in the news over and over where someone leaves, they're upset, like a month later, they delete the entire production data store. And then the company's scrambling and all over the news for having an announcement around, you know, oh, we didn't know they still had access. Like, 
it's a problem that we should have solved 20 years ago. And as an industry, we did do a very good job doing it. Uh, I'm stoked to see that there's so much attention in this space right now. And, and you know, here at Strong Dam, we love to say, like, this is the year of access because it's just not okay for 65% of organizations to be using shared logins, right? <laughs> it's not okay for, you know, right. everyone to have root credentials to everything. And uh, we're seeing companies really start to rotate around this theme. And, you know, zero trust is one thing that's really pervasive and it's aspirational. But you can't get to zero trust if you just don't know who Aaron is and what Aaron should be able to do in the organization's infrastructure. That means access is the fundamental pillar that's going to step you towards an actual functional zero trust strategy. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because for me, um, I've always thought of security in a probably more traditional sense of it. It's a trade-off of convenience, right? The more security you had, the, usually the the less convenience the, the users had. Um, and maybe that slowed down velocity, but then you had this rise of automation and, and exactly like you said, you go really, really fast, but guess what? Now you're not nearly as secure a lot of times as you used to be. Um, but then everyone kind of would like to wrap all of that in DevSecOps or wrap that in zero trust, but, but you know, I'm kind of getting the feeling from you that, that zero trust is more of an, an ideal or a goal. And so maybe tell everyone a little bit about, you know, your thoughts on, okay, what is zero trust? What isn't zero trust? And how does that relate to this concept of access as code and, and including everything as you go? Yeah, I mean, so I I had the good fortune of working with John Kindervog while I was at Palo Alto Networks, and he's considered kind of the father of, of the zero trust movement uh, from his Forrester analyst days, right? And and the thing I absorbed most was zero trust is is as much an evolving strategic approach to cybersecurity as it is a framework. What it is not is a product you go buy off the shelf, right? And and so for me, I think when people are looking at zero trust. Uh, it's a holistic approach to things. It is not, um, you know, it is not like a set of features or an appliance you deploy or something like that. And so I think uh, there's a lot of hubbub in security right now where I'm, uh, you know, Zscaler CEO saying, oh, people have co-opted the term and are abusing it. And I don't disagree and I don't agree. What I think is I think people misunderstand zero trust pretty aggressively, right? I think that it's a panacea that organizations reach for because they think it's going to solve a lot of the security inertia and pain that they've kind of built. And it's really mostly technical debt in the security realm. Uh, and I think that organizations now, as they've seen a better way of doing things and programmatically defining things in the cloud, are reaching for this programmatic capability in other aspects of their operational excellence, including security. Uh, and they want systems to all interoperate together instead of having people be the glue that's connecting all these systems together, right? And so zero trust promises a lot of that and seems like it's this silver bullet. And I think a lot of people grapple onto that because some security stuff is just so painful to still use and, and set up and operate in today's era. Uh, and that's really just a lagging indicator because the security industry is following and, and tends to be echoing these terms to gain market share and, and to get customers to listen and look at their product demos rather than philosophically leading the conversation and saying a way you can get, you know, and this is not a word, more zero trusty, right? <laughs> is by fundamentally embracing these things you have to change about the way you do it. It's very attractive to like say, I'll spend $50,000 and then say, I'm zero trust guys. Look at me. I got it right. Like it's not a Pokemon. You can't just go catch zero trust and, and say you own it. Like 
you actually have to fundamentally change the organization and change is very hard uh, and change is very hard unless you have executive buy-in, right? And so it's top-down empowered and bottom-up executed in organizations. Oh, that's, that's really good. Thank you, Tim. And what that then gets me to think about is, is a little bit of a follow-on to all of this, right? Or it, again, trying to go back in history a little bit of this, of like in the DevOps movements, you had developers, you had operations, security was kind of an oper, uh, you know, an afterthought, if you will. And then, you know, they didn't quite have the seat at the table, if you will. And then Dev, mm-hmm. DevSecOps kind of came into being as well. And, and let's bring that all back together and talk about strong DM a little bit as well. And um, there's this term, access as code. And is this, uh, you know, to, to put it bluntly, a way for security to get a seat at the table instead of being, you know, a step behind or a lagging indicator or some of the other things that you mentioned? You know, I think so. Like, let, let me flip the perspective a little bit. I think, like, what we've done successfully and what I'm really excited about is we're the first mover in something we're kind of calling people first access, right? And if you think about that for a second, security builds for who? It builds for the security admins and the CISOs who are expecting the outcomes of feeling secure from products, right? But it's not intended to actually make companies more productive or people happier at work. It's intended to make their life slightly more painful. You exchange usability for security and everyone thinks that's that that's you know a zero-sum game. We think of it very differently, right? We think that people should be able to very organically interact with the infrastructure they need to do their job. And by the way, it's everyone now. You have marketing ops standing up cloud infrastructure and, and calculating, you know, what the response rates are for millions of emails going out through systems and what links are performing better and ads and things like that. You have sales operations who are deriving data from your customers and helping people make smarter decisions about prospecting and engaging their customers. You have FinOps who are like figuring out, uh, you know, cloud costs and spends and projections and, and like everyone's spinning infrastructure up now. It's not just like us geeks back in the closet that used to be doing it. Um, so if everyone has to work with a managed infrastructure, then that pain that you are inducing on your own employees is scaling out to like massively expensive levels. And if I make you wait, and, and by the way, it's like 53% of organizations were saying it takes hours or weeks for access to infrastructure to get granted. And if you need something new every couple of weeks, you know, you've lost a couple of weeks of productivity per employee. And if you have 5,000 employees, you're in the millions of dollars of lost, right? Lost productivity and lost revenue opportunity. Like that is insanity if you were to apply it to any other business as an inefficiency. And so now you think of this access as a, a way of defining what's Aaron's relationship with the infrastructure he needs to do his job. And in that perspective, like we create a personalized experience that can be described as code, right? We can say Aaron needs access to things that look and are described as this to do his job. And no matter how dynamic the infrastructure is, you always will just see your personalized list of resources that you work with on a day-to-day basis. And you really like click and you're on the box interacting and you never have to think about which VPN did I need to get on? Um, what data center is that in? Where is that resource? Which credential do I need to use? Like, you know, where did I put that Amazon IAM key? 
all that stuff's abstracted away from the user space. So users never have credentials or identities to worry about other than the one identity that you use every day when you log in at work, which is your single sign-on, right? Uh, I log in as Aaron at the cloudcast as an awesome podcast.io or, or whatever your SO is. And that identity empowers your ability to interact with all of the infrastructure you need to do your job. And if you change jobs, it's instantly available. And if you ever have to leave the organization, all that access is instantly gone, right? And so it's a total paradigm shift for companies where all this was manual and all this was kind of best effort uh, to it is a programmatic guarantee by the system. Uh, just like when I click, you know, launch EC2 instance, I get a machine out the back end. That item potency around your access is what we mean when we talk about access as code. Nice, nice. That's a fantastic overview, Tim. I, I certainly appreciate that. And we are at our time for today. So I'm going to wrap it up right there with that summary. So Tim, where can everyone find out more about you, about Strong DM? Oh, absolutely. Uh, please check us out at strongdm.com. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. Uh, just search for Strong DM. We are putting out all kinds of uh great material around this year of access concept and data from the survey of all of your peers talking about, Hey, it's okay. That sometimes it takes a long time to get access. There's a way to fix it. Right. And uh, we look forward to, you know, hopefully coming back sooner than eight years in the future. Uh, but if not, I'll talk to you about my jetpack and, you know, my cloud-based house or whatever it is at that point. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah, and I do encourage everyone, there's that year of access infographic and and, and report, um, as, as Tim mentioned and I mentioned earlier, go check it out uh, without a doubt. Um, and so for that, I'm going, going to wrap it up for this week. And for everyone out there, thank you again for listening. Um, if you have a chance, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts uh, and please tell a friend. And if you ever have any topics or feedback, it's always show at thecloudcast.net or thecloudcast.net on Twitter as well. And so uh, thank you everyone for listening and uh, we will talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to The Cloudcast. Please visit thecloudcast.net to find more shows, show notes, videos, and everything social media. 